We're going we're gonna to open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 in a second, and uh, I hope that we won't be too long, just because it's cold, but there's fire in God's Word to warm us up, and we're going to give our time to what's most important this morning, and that's hearing from the Lord. So, if you're at 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 13 to the end of verse 21. I know uh, three weeks ago Matt covered this, but just want to set it in the right context. Then we'll pray and then we'll dive in to look at what God has to say to us this morning. But here's Peter's words through which God is speaking to us. And he says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll turn our attention to what God is saying to us. Lord, we thank you this morning that we have the privilege of gathering together, even though it's cold, even though we don't normally meet in this room, even though we don't uh, normally worship to someone playing a bucket. Lord, we thank you that you still meet with us. And Lord, we pray now that as we read your word and devote ourselves to studying it together, we'd be able to set aside the distractions of the cold, the distractions of thinking about lunch and the distractions about uh, half term and what the week holds. And Lord, we pray that we'd be able to focus intently on your word and hear your voice speaking to us. So Lord, I pray for help as I preach and I pray for all of us to have ears to hear you speaking to us so that we might be conformed into the image of your dear son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, last week, I got to spend some time with my friend Rick Gamash, who was, uh, who was here for the conference that we held. And just talking to him a number of times over dinner and hearing him preach, I was reminded of the brilliance of C.S. Lewis. And I was reminded of, as I prepared my message this morning, for this morning, didn't prepare my message this morning, let me just point that out, <laughs> it did take me all week, uh, but as I prepared for this morning, I was reminded of a memorable scene from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it's chapter 8 if you've got your copy with you, uh, and, <clears throat> and this is, uh, this is the, under the chapter, What Happened After Dinner. Now, if you know anything about this book, you will know that at one point, the, the four uh, children, uh, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are in Narnia together, and they find themselves in the Beavers' household, uh, and Lucy and Peter are talking about what had happened to Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, who had been arrested by the White Queen, the White Witch, because uh, of his 
um, letting Lucy go free when he was supposed to capture her and take her to the White Witch. And so Peter and, and Lucy are asking uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about, can they not do something to try and set Mr. Tumnus free? And this is the conversation that goes. It's no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move... Oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices all at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But he's not often here, you understand. Never in my time or in my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. And he'll settle the White Queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Oh, Lord, love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most that she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it says in the old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter will meet its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But when shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. For I am to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, uh, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well then, he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan in the story is called good but not safe as the children hear that he, for the first time in the book, he's a lion. Good but not safe. Maybe that seems a strange contradiction to you <coughs> because lions, are they good but not safe? Are they? Well, we all know that they're not safe, which is why when we go to Bristol Zoo, they're behind that thick glass and then the wall and then the fence we know that lions are not safe but here we're told that they are good maybe it's a strange contradiction and maybe as we read verses 13 to 21 we find their same kind of similar strange contradictions flowing in our minds because we read God is father and God is judge how does that work 
And then we read, God calls Christians to hope in verse 13 and verse 21, but then he calls us to fear in verse 13. How are we supposed to understand these strange contradictions? Well, three weeks ago, Matt began to unpack these verses. He did 13 to 16, and now I'm going to focus in on 17 to 21. But let me just give you a quick recap of where we're at. And if you haven't been here for any of the first Peter messages, you can catch up with us. In verses 1 to 12, Peter's been celebrating the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our salvation. We've been chosen by the Father, saved by the Son, regenerated by the Spirit, and we've been brought into a glorious inheritance that's ours, guaranteed for us into the future, kept by God for us, who's also keeping us for an inheritance, Peter says, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading in heaven then in verse 13 there's this transitionary word which says therefore which peter says well in light of all that i've been saying here's how elect exiles are supposed to live in light of the truths that i've just been celebrating in verses 1 to 12 how we should live as christians elect exiles while we wait for christ to return And there's three commandments, three commandments in verses 13 to 21. In verse 13, there's the first commandment, which is be hopeful, which Matt described as looking forward. God has promised us a glorious inheritance in Jesus, and he has called us to fully fix our hope on that inheritance and on God, who is good to his word to fulfill his promises. We're to look forward. We're to be hopeful. Then the second commandment is in verses 14 to 16, where it's be holy. Be holy, or as Matt phrased it, look up. And as we look up and see him who made an end of all our sin, who dwells in unapproachable light, we as Christians are called to pursue holiness and obedience in our lives, patterned after the holiness of God. It's a simple kind of all-encompassing command to, as Jesus states it in the New Testament, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's these two commands, be hopeful, be holy. And then in verse 17, we find the third command, be fearful. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Be fearful. In verse 17, Peter says, if we have identified ourselves with Christ, if we put our hope in him and God has become our father, we are to live out our remaining time in exile in fear. Okay? Wow, that's a strange contradiction, isn't it? God wants us to be fearful. Really? Well, he tells us why we should be fearful. He says, because God is judge. Look at verse 17. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Okay? Peter calls us to be fearful. Now, let me set this in some context for us. Yes, We've just read, or or Peter's just preached verses 1 to 12 to us that reminds us that through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we've been saved, we've been regenerated, we've been made alive, we've experienced the forgiveness of our sins through the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. That's all true and glorious, but now he wants to remind us what is also true is that God is judge, and he's an impartial judge. He's not a judge who looks upon people with favoritism or, uh, imp- you know, uh, 
and sort of like turns a blind eye here and not over here. He is an impartial judge. C.S. Lewis would probably say it this way. God is good, but he's not safe. That's what Peter wants us to see this morning. God is good, but he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. And he wants his readers, he wants us this morning to grasp the reality and the finality of God's approaching judgment, okay? Peter wants us to be clear as Christians that there is a day coming when every single person, including you and me, will be judged. We will stand before the throne of God and be judged by him. We will have our entire lives, our entire thoughts, and all of our conduct, and all of our words, and all of our deeds examined thoroughly and evaluated by the judge. It's not just taught here in 1 Peter, it's taught in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 16. It's taught in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and in other places in the New Testament. That there is a day coming where we will stand before the throne of the judge. But, because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, And because of the fully satisfying, fully paid up work of Jesus Christ who died as our substitute in our place for our sins, bearing God's wrath on our behalf in his body on a tree, paying our debt that we could not pay, all who have repented of their sins, all who have put their faith in Jesus Christ will hear the words of Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and yet he's still going to judge us he's going to judge us not to determine our salvation but to 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 determine our rewards There's a day coming when we will not experience the condemnation and the punishment and the judgment of God because of our sins, but our deeds and our words and our thoughts will be examined to show and to display the reality of our faith in the Savior. Let me put it another way. Those of us who've been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, will be judged for rewards not for salvation. This again is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. And in Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, there is a day coming when our heavenly rewards will be distributed in proportion to the faithfulness of us in this life. And that's what Peter wants us to be aware of. We will stand before the judgment seat of God and he will examine our lives and determine our rewards and so he tells us in verse 17 be fearful be fearful that is we should have a right understanding of who God is and he should be reverently feared now when we're talking about fear we're not talking about soul destroying terrorizing dread okay neither are we talking about the tormenting agonizing anguish and anxiety of kind of cowering in God's presence. What we're talking about here, what Peter is talking about here is this. We need a recognition of reality that God is our father, but he's also an impartial judge. He's not a permissive, indulgent, anything goes father. 
He is, as Jared Mellinger reminded us last week from Isaiah chapter 6, holy. He's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you remember the picture that Jared painted us for us last week from Isaiah 6? He said, he's, you know, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne. The robe of his train, the train of his robe filled the temple and... <clears throat> There was angels in innumerable number uh, surrounding the throne of grace uh, and they were covering their eyes because they couldn't look on the holiness of God and they were shouting and calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then at the, <clears throat> at the, as he saw the holiness of God and he heard the angels sing, he saw that the whole temple was filled with smoke signifying the glory and the presence of God. And then he, the whole building shook at the presence of God. And then what does Isaiah do? He falls down fearful in front of God. Calls down woe upon himself. <coughs> God is good, but he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. Now, let's deal with this because it is a strange contradiction. Because we grow up hearing that because of the grace of God, because of God's perfect love for us, it drives out all fear. And that's true. But here we're commanded to be fearful. So how do we make sense of that? How, how having encouraged us to look forward in hope and to look up to God in his holiness, now Peter warns us about the judgment of God. Isn't salvation by grace? Perhaps that's a question floating through your mind right now. Why is he exhorting us to fear? Surely we're not supposed to be fearful. Fear doesn't fit with joy and confidence in Jesus, does it? So maybe Nathan's wrong this morning. Maybe he has prepared this message this morning and he just ran out of time. Well, no, it's here and it can't be softened. Neither is this a warning to non-Christians. This is a warning to the elect exiles. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. It's to Christians. And Peter doesn't think it a contradiction. He thinks it's a compliment. They're complementary. They go together. Joy in Jesus, hope and fear. They go together. So what Peter is doing here in verse 17 is this. He's protecting us from having a domesticated view of God. He's protecting us from having a domesticated view of God. Peter here is seeking to steer us away from the error that we can easily fall into where God is tamed. That we forget that he's not safe. He's trying to protect us from the error of thinking that we can downgrade his holiness in such a way and lower the bar on his righteous demands that, we, that then leaves us vulnerable to all manner of licentiousness. Let me put it this way. What Peter is trying to do here is to, is to protect us from thinking that we can indulge in sin without any real consequences. What Peter is trying to do here is to protect us from the temptation to think that because God is our Father, we can do what we want and get away with it. Because he's a God who loves us. And so he'll just wink at our sin. It's paid for in Jesus, so it doesn't really matter. Now Peter's protecting us from that error. He's protecting us from the temptations that we face to think, well, do you know what? God is my father, so I can compromise my integrity at work. I can click on that website and look at its content. I can give in to the fear of man and conform to the values of this world so that my friends will think I'm cool and hip. 
Peter is protecting us from the error that we can so easily fall into. That is, we can act how we like now, repent later. God's got us. He's good. He wants to protect us from a domesticated view of God. He's protecting us from presuming on the grace of God. He was protecting us from playing fast and loose with the forgiveness that God has purchased for us in Christ. Peter Davids in his commentary on First Peter says this, which I thought was very helpful. He says, Peter here is reminding his readers that it is not their persecutors who need to be feared, but God, who is not to be trifled with, nor presumed upon, for his judgment is ultimate. He wants us to be rightly fearful of God. It's a little bit like if you think you are a good driver, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you think you are a good driver, part of knowing uh, about driving and being a good driver is knowing that at any time an idiot could cut you up and cause an accident. And so you have this sense in your mind that I need, as a good driver, I need to be careful in how I drive because if I'm not careful, something could happen, something foolish could happen, and I could end up in an accident. It's the same thing here with Peter. He's saying, listen, yes, you're an elect exile. You've been chosen by God, saved through the work of Jesus Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And yet we're to live fearful of God, knowing that we don't want to offend God. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Look with me at verses 18 and 19, because Peter here moves then to inform us and transform our understanding of his commandment and how we're to conduct ourselves with fear during our exile. And these two verses, they they support this command to be fearful. So he says, be fearful, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He says, be fearful, knowing, knowing that you have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There is to be an appropriate fear of God that is informed by his holiness, verses 14 to 16, and his impartiality as judge in verse 17. But we're also to live in, with a reverent fear of God, informed by his wonderful grace towards us in Jesus Christ, that he has redeemed us at such a cost. Peter here says, just like he said, be hopeful by looking forward and be holy by looking up. He now says, be fearful, informed by looking back. Looking back at what God has done to you, that Christians have been ransomed from our futile ways, from that emptiness and worthless pursuit of sin and devotion to idolatry that we learn from our fathers and our forefathers. We have been pulled out of bondage to futile ways and we've been put in a completely different place. We've been liberated. We've been set free, not with gold or silver that perishes, but we've been purchased and ransomed and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus himself. Now, all blood is precious, 
All blood is precious because without blood you cannot live. We can't live without blood. Which is why there's, in the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices that they talked about was the, about the shedding of blood because it was thought that the, the blood contained the life. It was the lifeblood of the animal. So in the shedding of the blood, you were shedding its life as a sacrifice in place of the sinner. But this blood is particularly precious because it belongs to the only Son of God, who Peter calls a perfect sacrificial lamb who gave himself to forgive the sins of the world, as John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 29. We could not save ourselves. The best we could offer, silver and gold, doesn't pay any debts in God's eyes. It's perishable. It doesn't last. It doesn't, it's insufficient to meet God's demands. But the good news of the gospel is that what God demands from us, God also provides for us. He's provided the ransom price. He's provided the redemption figure that was needed to purchase us from sin and hell and death. It required life. The life of the very Son of God. We had sinned so greatly against God that our sin, cosmic treason against God, required God to send his one and only son. The, the ransom price was not gold and silver, no matter how much we could amass together. The ransom price that was required to keep us out of hell was the costliest treasure conceivable, Jesus Christ. And his blood poured out for us so let's just think about this together what did it cost god to make you part of his family what did it cost god to adopt you as his son or daughter into his family it cost him the sacrificial death of his one and only true son he was prepared to kill his one and only true son who he enjoyed fellowship with for all eternity. Perfect love, perfect unity, perfect relationship. He was prepared to sacrifice all of that to take enemy sinners covered and mired in stains of sin and to take us into his family and carry us up in his arms and embrace us as sons and daughters. He did that at the cost of his own Son, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter goes on in verses 20 and 21 to tell us that the salvation that we experience and receive through Jesus is not a divine afterthought. He thought long and hard about this. It was, if you like, it was determined before history began. It was determined before creation was made. It was determined in the ancient, eternal mind of God that one day Jesus would appear in the flesh of mankind at a particular time to bear the sins of, the, of his people on the tree in his body and he would rise to new life and in doing so he would rescue us from 
our sins. Look with me at what Peter encourages us with in verse 20. He says he was forsaken before the he was sorry, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last times for your sake. See that? Peter wants us to know Christ had us in mind in eternity. Before he made anything, before he said, let there be light, he was thinking about you and how he was going to send Jesus to save you and rescue you and pay your debt and cancel your sin and the debt that stood against us and make you his children. Peter wants us to see he was thinking about you. And Jesus came and was incarnated and lived and died and was buried in a tomb and rose again to new life and ascended to the heavens and is returning all for the sake of you and me. Didn't that blow your mind? <laughs> it does to me. I was just, I was just thinking about this. God sits, okay, I don't think it goes like this, but this is how my imagination works. God is sitting around in eternity past with the son, as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they are thinking about saving you. Put your name in there, Sharon, Ash, Naomi. He's thinking about you, and he's saying, in order to rescue them from hell, Jesus, you need to die in their place for, for them. You need to do it. You need to be incarnated in the flesh. You need to become like them so you can die for them. And their sin is so great that it's going to require such a sacrifice. And do you know what? I'm willing to do it. And Jesus says, I'm willing to go. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm willing to make them see it so that they can be brought to life and they can be freed from their sins and they can be sons and daughters of the living God. And they were thinking about us. Isn't that incredible? Not a divine afterthought. This isn't God's plan B. Oh, do you know what? Sin entered the world. Oh, I really wish this hadn't happened and I don't know what to do. And they sit around and they go, well, I, I don't know. What are we going to do? No, they had a plan from the beginning to save you. Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Peter says now, let this gospel reality, let these gospel truths inform our understanding. Knowing this, knowing that Christ paid for our sins, knowing that God has loved us deeply and dearly from before the foundation of the world, knowing these things now, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your exile. Let me put it another way. Yes, our sins have been paid 
in full by Jesus. He has judged Jesus in our place. We have been deeply and dearly loved by God. And he sent his son and shed the precious blood of Jesus to make us his sons and daughters. Now we are commanded to live a holy and fearful life in fear, not of judgment, but in fear of offending or grieving or misrepresenting or disappointing the one who loved us enough to ransom us with the precious blood of Jesus. What Peter here is saying is this. Pleasing God should mean everything to the Christian. And fear of grieving God, of misrepresenting God, of offending God, of disappointing God through our ungodliness should be of the greatest concern to the Christian. Peter wants us to be motivated to live for God by love as we see the great redemption price of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he wants us to be motivated by fear that we despise trampling on God's love. That we fear abrogating the precious blood of God. That we fear through somehow we behave in such a way that's not, that it's not worthy of God's love. Now we're not behaving to gain God's love we're we're loved by God and now we live in such a way fearful that we don't want to offend that love and offend and abrogate the precious blood of Jesus Christ he's saying so precious is the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus for sinners that we should not lightly esteem it by just behaving how we like and thinking we could just repent later and presuming on God's grace No, he says, fresh glimpses of the inestimable, incomprehensible value of Jesus and his blood shed for you should make you want to please him and make you fearful of displeasing him. Now, let me flip it around and say it like this. If we're not pursuing holiness and we're not conducting ourselves with fear, then there is the great possibility and danger that we might be insulting the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we should be fearful of doing that. Isaac Watts in his old hymn that we're going to sing afterwards says it like this. I think he captures it. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? And were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small? Love, love, 
so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Knowing that you have been ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Knowing this, conduct yourselves with fear, reverence, awe. while you remain on earth. As we survey the wondrous cross, we should be motivated to hope in Christ, verse 13. We should be motivated to obey him, verse 15. And we should be motivated to fear him, verse 17. Because we know the unique and the priceless value of the blood of Jesus Christ that has bought us life and freedom that we enjoy now and forevermore. Let me finish with this quote from Juan Sanchez in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says this, This gospel, this, this good news, is the primary motivation for our holiness as we sojourn in a hostile world during the time of our exile. Because God is holy, he will judge sin. And we deserve such judgment. But instead of judgment, we receive mercy because God has purchased us with the blood of Jesus. And because we have been delivered from the bondage of our former ways, we are now to display our Father's holiness during our time here on earth. When we meditate on this gospel and continuing, continue believing this gospel, we will be warned by God's judgment and motivated by God's grace to walk in holiness, to become more like him as we journey towards the day when we will meet him. Not only as our king, but as our father. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Aslan depicts the Christ figure, doesn't he? He's good, but he's not safe. But he's the king. I tell you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for reminding us of the precious blood of the sacrifice of Jesus that has ransomed us from sin and idolatry and death and hell. Knowing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cost to redeem us and the precious blood of Jesus that was willingly shed on our behalf. Let us conduct ourselves with fear and pursue holiness for your glory. May we be spared from a domesticated view of who you are. May we be spared from thinking that we can tame you. May we be spared from thinking that we've got you in a box and therefore your holy demands can be lowered and we can live how we like. May we be aware afresh this morning that you are our father, but you are not an indulgent and permissive father. You're still a judge and holy. 
and worthy of our pursuit of holiness. So we pray, Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that we have received so that we might glorify you as we should. May pleasing you be of our utmost concern and may offending the grace of God in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and trampling on it and abrogating it, may it be our greatest concern that we do not do that. So help us to be hopeful, help us to be holy, help us to be rightly fearful of you and help us to live for your glory, I ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this fine, fine hymn as we close out our time.